We tend to recommend that folks go really, really minimalist in terms of build as little as possible, as fast as possible. If your product involves collecting a bunch of information from people and notifying other people, could you just do a Google form and an email blast to start out with? How do you build as little as possible? And it's a little bit funny for us because like, right, we get brought in to help build this stuff and it would be great for us if we could convince our clients that they should build huge amounts of product because that would be a lot more revenue for us. But realistically, we want to guide them towards the best possible solutions. Build as little software as you can up front because a lot of it's going to get replaced. A lot of it's going to get changed. And then pick technologies that are boring. My name is Max Walker. I'm a co-founder and managing partner at Piton Labs. This is Code Story. A podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Spent six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the back end. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Labpart. And today, how Max Walker built the best partner for your startup to help you build and launch the best product. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-source edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there, too. Terso makes this easy, utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the data edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Max Walker lives in eastern upstate New York, or Vermont Light, as he calls it, with his grumpy elderly cat. He comes from a tech background, graduating with a computer science degree and working as a software engineer. Along the way, he fell in love with entrepreneurship and dove into the startup world. But outside of tech, he's an avid rock climber, hiker, and loves super spicy food as a vegetarian. Max is a startup veteran, and given he had gone down the building and fundraising route, he wanted to do something a bit different. What he really loved was the building, the messy beginning of startups. So he built a business around that early stage. This is the creation story of Piton Labs. So Piton Labs basically came out of my background and sort of interest in building early stage technology products. I had started a couple of startups, I'd worked at other ones, built teams, built products from the ground up, and I loved doing that, but I was a little bit burnt out on the fundraising cycle and all the other stuff that comes with the sort of venture-backed startup ecosystem. And I didn't have like a specific product that I really wanted to be building. I didn't have this, this thing that I was massively passionate about. So I thought, well, I've done a lot of consulting for folks, sort of helping them figure out how to do this themselves, you know, sort of various startups and things like that. 
And I love that because I get to work on these exciting products, get to work on the early stages of a business where it's all sort of the messy, figuring it out, getting stuff done, whatever it takes stage. I thought, well, I'm kind of tired of doing this as a consultant because it's, you know, there's not a lot of long-term future, long-term growth in that. Nothing wrong with being a consultant, but you're not really building very much. You're sort of just, you know, going from client to client, project to project. I said, well, what if we built like a business where what we did was solve those early gnarly engineering problems, build the team, build the product, help figure out the vision for the technology side of these early stage businesses, and then hand them off. Because at a certain point, it gets a little boring and I don't want to be involved anymore. And, and, and to be honest, my expertise sort of stops at a certain point. So that's what we've done. We basically jump in at very, very early stages for a lot of businesses and we build out their product, but we also help them build out their team, their strategy for product and engineering. We, you know, we jump in as early as we don't really know what we're building yet and we need our, your help to figure it out. It's a little bit different from like what you think of with like a dev shop or an engineering consultancy firm where, you know, we generally don't ask our clients for spec documents because they don't have, not only they don't have spec documents, they probably don't have specs yet. <laughs> they're still figuring out what it is that they're even building. This is a business around those early stages, so this question may feel odd, but tell me about you know what you would consider the MVP for Piton, right? That first version of your business. How long did it take you to build, and you know what sort of tools or processes or or things did you use to help get it off the ground? Yeah, it's funny, you know, because I've done the process of building an MVP for product companies, my, you know, my own product companies in the past, it's something that I had to learn over time. I think a lot of people, when they first start out, they swing too big for their, for their minimum viable product. They forget the minimum part of minimum viable product, right? One of the things I sort of took to heart when we started Piton Labs was just what is the simplest version of this? And the simplest version of it was really, we just sort of go in with not a real agenda, no real systems in place. And we just sit down with these early stage founders and say, what do you need help with? How can we help? What expertise can we bring to the table? And just really kind of go in with no real plan, no real systems, no real process in place. But with enough expertise and having been around the block to sort of have a catalog of systems and processes in place that we can call on if we have to. That worked well for the first couple of engagements while we were figuring out what it is that our clients actually needed from us. But one of the things that we found is that what a lot of these companies needed because they were actually building MVPs was advice on what the process is, what the process should look like for building an MVP. So thinking about how do we set expectations of what are the requirements here? How do we make sure that the clients or the customers are able to communicate to us what they're looking for? How do we deliver something you know, quickly and, and easily? So we've done a lot of you know, asynchronous. Our team is fully remote. So we've sort of helped a lot of our clients who are also remote, either because of COVID or more recently, just because they want to be, figure out how to sort of get agile software development processes in place in a really lightweight way where folks can sort of jump onto Slack or whatever other chat tool they use and figure out what they're supposed to be working on today and, and deliver a lot of value and just move quickly. With any, you know, MVP, quote unquote, or any early building of something, you have to make decisions and trade-offs. And you're alluding to some at a high level. Dive into some of those for me and, you know, trade-offs around, you know, how you are approaching problems. What are the things you had to, like, put one side of the equation on one hand and one side of the other and be like, what are we going to do? Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and how you coped with them. The trade-offs are pretty important because in the early stages of a business, there is just a very limited amount of, of time and effort available to spend on different projects, work initiatives, whatever. So from a technology perspective, we tend to recommend that folks go 
really, really minimalist in terms of build as little as possible, as fast as possible. If your product involves collecting a bunch of information from people and notifying other people, could you just do a Google form and an email blast to start out with? Um, those sorts of questions, right? How do you build as little as possible? And it's a little bit funny for us because like, right, we get brought in to help build this stuff and it would be great for us if we could convince our clients that they should build huge amounts of product because that would be a lot more revenue for us. But realistically, we want to guide them towards the best possible solutions to the problems at hand. And most of the time, that's really building as little as possible. Build as little software as you can up front because a lot of it's going to get replaced. A lot of it's going to get changed. Um, and then pick technologies that are boring. Without irritating too many software developers in the world, I think that there's a certain tendency of people that are knowledgeable about technology and building technology products to like chase after the exciting, shiny new thing and over-engineer everything. Most of the time, scaling and, and sort of those kinds of problems aren't going to be the issue that you need to deal with up front. You need to bring something to market and learn from it. And you can go back and deal with all the scaling issues later. And if you do it in a smart way, if you think about what pieces of this need to be able to scale really well and what pieces of this are probably throwaway, you can set yourself up into a position where you're not really you know, leaving anything on the table when you do find that growth, but you're also not spending a whole bunch of surplus effort to build you know, this massively scalable system or product that just doesn't actually ever take off and needs to be changed or, or iterated on, and, and that work all goes to waste. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done, i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? Encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault utilizing zero-trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble? Super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash codestory. 
So you've got Piton, and it's to the point where you're you're working, you're gaining some traction, right? Again, these are sort of wrapped around MVP, but I'm but I'm I still think they apply. How are you maturing your business? What I'm curious about is, you know, how are you building what you might call your roadmap at Piton? Like, what is your roadmap at Piton? And I think what I'm curious about is is how do you decide the next thing to you know address or to uh, create uh, with Piton? I think there's a tendency for people that are in sort of services businesses to just try to scale linearly, right? How do we get more billable hours? How do we get more clients? Those sorts of things. And that's really not what we're about for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, one of the big ones is that we want to work on interesting projects with cool clients that are building really, really interesting products. You know, we're not just looking to, to grow as big and as fast as possible. And I think that's a pretty clear cut roadmap. You scale up sales until you can't handle the volume and then you scale up delivery and then you scale up sales and you just go back and forth forever. Um, our roadmap is pretty different, right? Like our roadmap looks like how do we get to the place where we can come in and really quickly deliver a whole bunch of value in a nonlinear way to our clients? The way that we've sort of been thinking about that is that, you know, just like you do customer discovery, if you're building a business to consumer product or a business to business, you know, product, we're doing customer discovery. Every, every engagement we have, we think about what about this resonates with the experiences we've seen across all of our early stage startup clients and what about it is sort of unique. Early on, we were really focused on helping build product, but we weren't really focused on helping build teams. But realistically, if our plan is to get folks set up and, and move on, we need to be able to leave them with a good team to maintain and carry forward that product and that work that's been done. Hiring is actually a huge part of what we can help with, which wasn't a thing we came in expecting to see from our clients. A lot of our clients, their CTOs were first-time founders. They didn't have a strong understanding of how to interview and vet potential startup employees, especially startup engineers who are really specific personality type skill set. So we would come in and say, hey, you know, we can help you write the job recs. We can help you do the interviews. We can train you to take over the responsibility for this. And that just came out of conversations with our customers and them telling us like, this is great, but what happens when you guys leave, right? And similarly, as we've continued to grow and do more of these engagements, we've started noticing that there's a lot of clients that are even earlier stage. Like we think about our sweet spot as being startups between seed stage and series B. And that puts it in terms of, you know, venture capital backed startups, but that's sort of like, you know, early growth stages. We found that there's a lot of clients or potential clients that are way earlier than that, that have, you know, the same kind of questions, problems that we'd love to help them solve. And often they're really, really exciting clients to work with but we need to be really, really efficient. So what we've thought about and we've been working on is building out sort of like, I would say almost packages that we've sort of pre-prepared for like, here are a whole bunch of best practices bundled up that we can hand off. It's a little bit less bespoke on a per client basis. It's like, here, let's give you the standard stuff. And then the little bit around the edges, we can do custom for you and make sure that it's it's the right thing. So it's sort of like productizing this, this consultancy services offering. Okay, so how you're going about this is pretty unique, which lends itself to having a unique set of people. So how did you go about building your team? And what do you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? I think hiring is just super, super tough in general. And especially until, until quite recently, it was just brutal market to be trying to hire software engineers, which is who we mostly hire. One of the things that we did up front is we were fully remote from day one 
We want to unlock as much talent as possible. We want to be able to hire really, really solid, motivated people, regardless of where they're located. Now, we do try to keep people mostly in the United States. We've got a few in South America. We're a pretty small team. We really do think that, you know, just because someone is outside of Silicon Valley or New York or the few other sort of tech hubs doesn't mean that they're any less qualified or skilled. It might just be harder to find those people and it's harder for those people to find the right roles. So that's something we've done that's really helped. We look for people that have built something themselves from the ground up before. There's all the table stakes of hiring a software engineer, right? Are you smart? Are you knowledgeable about the subject matter? Are you a reasonable person to work with? You know, so there's some software engineers out there that are brilliant, but just not the, not the most fun to work with. One of the sort of unique characteristics we really look for is, have you started something from the ground up, built it with your own two hands, and you know, been really passionate about it? Because what that shows us is that the person is gonna take ownership, they're gonna have autonomy. You know, we're a small team, we're not putting product managers in place all over the place and doing tons of micromanaging. We want folks that can really just hit the ground running and take ownership. And the only thing that I've found that correlates with that is having done it in the past, especially having done it for your own reasons. So that's former startup founders, former lead engineers at startups, people that have started major open source projects, things like that. That doesn't make people uniquely qualified as software engineers, but it makes them uniquely qualified for the types of work that we're looking for people to do, which is really, really autonomy heavy and really focused on, on just building things you know, from scratch, from the ground up. This episode was automatically optimized by Cast. If you run cloud-native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud costs, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, Cast AI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vercel edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy with a developer experience of SQLite in a distributed database you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for CodeStory listeners. Head over to terso.tech CodeStory and get started today. That's T-U-R-S-O dot tech CodeStory. Terso. Welcome to the Data Edge. So this will this will be interesting, right? We're not talking about software; we're talking about people and probably process. But how how are you approaching scalability with Python Labs? And you know, were were you thinking scalability from day one, or you know, have you been fighting this as you grow in any sort of capacity? be honest, we, I think, went in not really thinking about scalability at all, which I think for startups is usually the right choice, unless you're talking about just, is this a viable startup? 
you know, when we're thinking about like getting off the ground, we're not, we don't want to be thinking about what does this mean when we have a hundred people? What does this mean 10 years from now? Things like that. We want to be thinking about how do we go from zero to one and just get this working. I sort of had this naive thought that, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good at hiring and there's lots of smart people out there and we won't have any trouble. And, you know, there's lots of work for us potentially. And, you know, I won't have any trouble finding that work and I won't have any trouble building a sales funnel and all those sorts of things. And what we found very quickly was actually the going from zero to one, the getting the initial thing off the ground and starting to get our first customers and generating revenue, that was all pretty easy. I think part of that's because, you know, we're business to business and we're selling a thing that pretty objectively people want, right? They want help building their products. Scaling and, and even scaling at very small scales, right? Going from just me and my co-founder to having a few people on staff was much harder than we expected it to be. We initially started scaling up around 2021 and the hiring market for software engineers was just crazy in 2021. So it was really hard to find good qualified people that we wanted to work with and weren't getting offers that were just so much more money than we could possibly afford. We also struggled with identifying who the right people to add to our team and also who the right people to target as clients were. I think early on, because we had some trouble hiring, we thought, well, we can hire some people that are good, but not great. And I think we realized very quickly that no, you know, our value proposition as a business is that we're all great. We're the, you know, we're the A team here. And then in terms of clients, initially we thought, oh, well, we want to work with only very, very early stage companies. And what we found very quickly is really early stage companies are, are tough to work with sometimes because they don't have a lot of revenue. They don't have a lot of funding necessarily. So they're not able to pay for the work that we do. So we had to figure out, you know, okay, what does a sales funnel look like? What does a marketing funnel look like? You know, there's a Google document somewhere that we have that's like our sales process is Max calls up people he knows and says, hey, do you have any work for us? And this is not scalable long term, right? And so, you know, we started thinking about how do we do this better and, and build process. And it's some of that's new for me because I built process from the engineering and product side before, but I've never really built it from a sales organization side or a marketing side. And so I'm still figuring some of this stuff out, but it's been, it's been a learning experience for sure. As you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? We're a little different from like, my, my background is mostly venture-backed startups, right? So like you want to build that that empire, that, that world domination, right? I mean, there's a whole thing about, you know, you want to be a monopoly, you want to dominate a market. Piton Labs is different. Like Piton Labs is, is a lifestyle business by and large. And so... When I, you know, take a step back and look at it, what I'm most proud of is the quality of the work that we do, but really the quality of the job that we offer to the folks that are on the team and the fact that we can have super, super bright people solving really interesting, hard problems without being a kind of junky place to work, because that's sort of what I set out to do. And it's funny, but it's actually kind of hard to do that because, you know, as much as I think I understand what people are looking for in a, in a job, what people are looking for in a company, like it's not always easy to tell what people are looking for and what will make people happy and productive and all those great things. And similarly, like ultimately we need to deliver for our clients. It needs to be a fun time without being just, you know, place to go hang out, right? It needs to be a productive business that generates revenue, solves our clients' problems, doing exactly what they want faster and better than they were expecting. And so balancing those things and getting it to a place where I think we've got that pretty well solved is really great. One of the sort of indicators of that for me is we hired a new person pretty recently and we had to go back and forth a few times with him about like, no, you don't need to work on the weekends. I understand that you come from a startup and that's what startups do, but here we don't need to do that. We've set it up so that's not how it works. You just got to get the work done and go enjoy your weekend. 
Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Really interesting thing about working with lots of different clients is you get a chance to avoid some really common mistakes, but you get a chance to make new and exciting mistakes all the time, right? We had a client, they were basically pulling in just huge amounts of financial services data, processing it, and sending it off for, they're basically doing loan underwriting, right? And so my background uh, from a tech perspective is a lot of fintech, so I'm very familiar with those sorts of things. And I sort of assumed the system that we built was able to handle everything and you know, we'd done some kicking of the tires and just sort of were ready to go live with this thing and thought, well, this is, you know, this is bulletproof. We've we've seen all this stuff before. There's nothing, you know, no lurking unknowns that we're not familiar with here. We went into production with the system and it like went down almost immediately, right? It turns out that there was some stuff, some legacy systems that were being integrated and stuff like that that just really didn't have the behavior, the performance characteristics, whatever. As the person in charge, the person running the project, like the buck stops with me, and I should have, you know, validated those things. And I should have, you know, reviewed that. Oh no, we're really, really sure that this exactly works the way that we expect it to. And what I think we did well in that situation was we were able to sort of step up, you know, get the team all aligned. I think a few of the folks on our team were a little bit nervous about what's the, you know, is the client going to be angry? Is the client going to be upset? Blah blah blah. You know, this is financial services. There's money at stake here. All that kind of stuff. And you know. Ultimately, what the client really wants in a situation like that is solving the problem and getting it getting it working. And so we sort of took a step back, looked at what the problems were, didn't panic, didn't do anything rash or crazy, but we just sort of took a step back and said, hey, we need to basically rate limit stuff down a whole bunch, figure out what's going on, correct the issue and bring it back up. And so we were able to do that really quickly. And that turned what could have been a really bad moment um, for that client where they had this launch that went super poorly to they had this launch and from the client perspective, it, it barely looked like anything happened at all, right? You know, there's a moment, a bit of a blip there. And within an hour, it was back to working as expected because we didn't panic and roll everything back and, and do all the things that we shouldn't do. Because of my experience, you know, running, running early stage businesses and things like that, those sorts of things just happen. Things break, systems fail. And one of the things that I've learned a lot over those years, you know, it's been beaten into me time and time again, is that you need to react quickly, but you need to react purposefully. You need to take a step back from the situation, evaluate what's going on, and you need to act based on you know a good understanding of the situation and what you can do about it rather than just panicking. I draw a lot of parallels to mountaineering, rock climbing, other serious pursuits where there are situations that are dangerous, but being afraid doesn't really help you very much. You need to just sort of accept the fear, understand why, and then think about what you can do to move forwards. And so that's that's sort of the approach that we take as much as possible with those kinds of mistakes. We sort of take, take a step back, take a couple of breaths, and then think about where we're going from there. Let's move on to something that's always interesting and fun for me to ask. So what does the future look like for Piton Labs for you know your approach, your company, and for your team? I think one of the things that we're really excited about is continuing to sort of productize what we offer to our clients. So being able to have more and more pre-answered questions, pre-built solutions for problems that are that we've seen time and time again. The force multiplier there is just huge, right? One of the big downsides of a startup is that you're starting from scratch and you don't have this sort of wealth of experience, knowledge, pre-engineered solutions to things, infrastructure in place, all that, and you need to build it all from the ground up. 
one of the things I'm really excited about is our ability to come in and offer that piece of it while still keeping the sort of exciting, innovative stuff that goes on in a startup. So we can say, you probably shouldn't have to figure out how to like deploy your product from scratch. That's a, that's a pretty well-solved problem that we can just sort of hand to you. But what your product is and how you build it, those are those are slightly more interesting and unique. And those are the areas where you should spend your time, basically being able to focus on the differentiated work, not the undifferentiated work. In terms of the team and the company more broadly, you know, we're not a hyper growth company. We're not looking to go, you know, exponential year over year necessarily in terms of size. But what we're looking for is continuing to add really, really bright, really motivated people to the team to diversify sort of the skill sets. We take an approach that we don't have, you know, a technology or a tool that we're sort of totally wedded to and will only use. But the, the more sort of diversity of experience and skill sets, the more of those hey, we've already been through this and let me tell you what we did before we can offer to our clients, which is really invaluable. And just being able to build that up, build up the company, diversify, work in different spaces, different verticals. One of the cool things about being a services company is that we're not just building fintech products. We're not just building IoT products, right? We've got all these different sort of spaces that we get to explore and play in. And so the more of those, the bigger we get, the sort of more we grow, the more we get to dip our toes into all these different exciting things that, that really, really is ultimately one of the most... Uh, interesting parts of this work, getting to see all these cool products and solutions that other people are building, getting to basically play CTO for a little while and then move on. Cool. Well, let's switch to you, Max. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. So I think about myself as both, you know, an engineer and a business person, right? And so from an engineering perspective, I've been reading a lot of the stuff from folks like Kelsey Hightower, who was at Google for a really long time and has really just set a super high standard in terms of excellent quality work, engineering, things like that. And just sort of getting that understanding of how to think about these really tough technical problems and build very cool solutions that are as simple as possible. That's one that just, you know, he, he really has always impressed me with his ability to sort of just look at a really complicated thing and cut it down to the simplest, simplest pieces. And then from the business side, you know, I know it's sort of generic and a lot of folks have, have said this, but I've looked a lot at, at folks like Tim Ferriss and other folks, you know, in that sort of early wave of remote work who were, you know, figuring out a lot of these, how do you build a distributed company? How do you build a distributed team? And they were doing it in a time period where it was way harder than it is now. We have all these great tools and infrastructure and it's somewhat culturally and, and systemically normalized that businesses are remote and have remote employees. If you go read Four Hour Work Week again, there's like stuff where he's talking about like going to an internet cafe and uh, VPNing into his home computer to check his email and stuff like that. Like it's just he figured out how to run a business, you know, a very different business than the one that I'm running, but he figured out how to run a business while traveling the world in a time period when that was like hard. So I think there's a lot of interesting lessons to be learned there, even if some of the details have changed over time. I think, you know, things like establishing process and, and creating documentation so that things don't become just sort of ephemeral culture that can disappear are really, really important lessons that can be taken from his work. At the intersection of those two, of the of the sort of business and technology, you have folks like uh, DHH. I don't couldn't tell you what his actual full name is, but the founder of 37 Signals or Basecamp, who built, you know, both these 
crazy technology products. He built Ruby on Rails and a bunch of other things and also built this distributed business from the ground up with a great work culture in a time period when that was completely unheard of. And so while, you know, his opinions can be controversial at times, he just had this whole greed about how cloud stuff is terrible and everyone should do on-prem because of cost. He's got a lot of really interesting lessons learned from a, a hard-fought career of building super interesting technology with a distributed team where people can actually enjoy their life and enjoy their work and aren't just being being worked to the bone. So I think all three of those folks are really, really influential for me. Okay, we talked about a um, mistake earlier, but this is a little different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Where would you consider taking a different approach? You know, it doesn't have to be something that even, you know, didn't work. It could have worked even well, but maybe you'd tweak it a little bit. One of the things that I would do very differently if I if I was starting out from day one is I would figure out what our process for bringing in new clients and understanding what their needs are from the get-go. We sort of ad hoc evolved that system and we spent a lot of time going back and forth and having a lot of conversations with folks and just trying to guess at what they actually needed from us until we figured out how to like really, really get to the meat of the, the issue, meat of the problem. One of the things that we've changed now is we go to folks and we say, you know, we're pretty direct about what is failing right now. What's your your hair on fire problem? And what's the thing that you can tell is going to be your hair on fire problem in three, six months? And just really being blunt about that and trying to get that out of folks up front, even often before we, we start working with them. And early on, I think we were a little, I was a little timid about, you know, that like, it's a service business and you don't really want to say, hey, why is your business failing? Right. That's not a good question to ask your client. But ultimately, that's why folks are asking for help, right? Is that they have challenges, they have problems that they're trying to solve. And so just being direct and being really forthright about like, tell me everything that keeps you awake at night and let's talk about how we start fixing those things rather than trying to be like, well, you know, I'm sure everything's great, but if you were going to like maybe make small changes, what would they be? Max, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit several times? We had a client pretty early on in the life, lifetime of Piton Labs who had built a product that was absolutely blowing up, just huge, huge growth. You know, he was like 21, still in college, didn't have a real sense of, you know, he was, he was the dog who caught the city bus, super smart kid, but just had not had any experience in this area before. One of the first things that I sort of said to him was, you need to separate your concerns into the things that are urgent problems right now and things that are going to be problems one day. And all the stuff that's going to be a problem one day can just go in a big pile somewhere in your mental filing cabinet or ideally actually written down somewhere in a, maybe not a real filing cabinet, but you know, an app, a notes app or something like that. And you need to just focus on the things that are a problem right now, because startups are such an overwhelming experience, especially if you're young, especially if you haven't done it before, that you're not going to be able to keep your eye on the ball and think about all these long term considerations at the same time. And not only are you not going to be able to do it and, you know, things are going to slip, you're going to miss stuff, but it's just not good for, you know, your mental health, your success as a founder um, and Ultimately, you know, when I started my first company, I sort of thought that I needed to just toughen up and work through stuff. And I learned very quickly that it's like, no, you need to get to the place where the business is sustainable and the, the work that you're doing is sustainable. You can't be just plugging fingers in the dam forever. You need to understand how to build a product that is resilient, a business that is resilient, and a business where you are not the only 
thing keeping the thing running. And the first step of that is getting through all the super pressing stuff, clearing out that backlog, letting the stuff that's less urgent sit or, or even just slide entirely. And then starting to figure out, okay, we've cleared away the sort of emergencies. You know, we've stabilized the scene. Where do we go from here? Because when you find product market fit or when you find really high growth, it's going to be an emergency. It's going to be exciting and fun and cool, but it's going to be a mess too. I've, I've always told our clients that they say like, I don't know if I have product market fit. I'm like, is stuff breaking all over the place? Are you getting customers calling you up in the middle of the night? If not, then you probably haven't found it yet. You need to be able to just sort of focus on what matters, take a step back from the emergency center, deal with the things that need to get dealt with, and then think about how you grow beyond that after things are sort of stabilized, especially for a lot of younger folks, a lot of you know first-time founders, young entrepreneurs. That's not instinctual. You're just getting told that you need to handle everything all at once. And so you get pulled in a million directions and, and everything ends up slipping rather than just the stuff that's probably going to let slide. That's great advice. Well, Max, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Piton Labs. Thank you so much, Noah. I appreciate it. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at